In 1888, uh, Rudyard Kipling penned the short story, The Man Who Would Be King. It was made into a major motion picture in 1975. And uh, it's a story of uh, two men who are uh, British soldiers in India who want something bigger, something more out of life. And they decide that what they want is to be kings. And so they... um, they figure out a plan and they figure out a place and they go to this little country and they, they, they show power and wisdom and a little bit of, of uh, conniving and they actually become kings. They get what they want. They, all the power is theirs. All the people are there. And in fact, the people think they're gods. And then, as you might imagine, it all falls apart. And you get to the end of the story, and uh, they are desperate and ultimately end up dying. Penniless and uh, with no rain whatsoever. I think there's something, a nerve in every human heart that Kipling is touching with that story. There's something in all of us that wants to be a king. Now, we might not want to be the king of a nation. We might not want to be the king of an empire. But all of us have a yearning for power, for control. To be able to, to tell people what to do, to be able to control situations. And, and to have some kind of a, of a significant influence on other people. Whether that would be a sense of power a sense over people, circumstances, whatever it may be, there is something in us that wants to rule, that wants to control. And in fact, when you read the scriptures, you get the sense that in many ways that is at the heart of our sinfulness. We want to be in charge. There is something of that idea, something about being kings, that is, that Obadiah is, is addressing. Now, most people don't spend a lot of time reading Obadiah. I suspect that if we raised hands, there would be a number of us here who, except for a couple of minutes ago, had never read the book of Obadiah. It's not the book that you, when somebody comes to you in great distress of life, the first thing you don't say to you don't say to them, "Look, let me turn to Obadiah to help you here." It doesn't even cross our minds. It's the, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. In fact, the prophecy I was thinking about this. It's so short; it hardly seems worth traveling, walking all the way to Edom to give them this prophecy. It, it is short. It is concise, and and a part of it. I think we read this and we think, I'm not really sure what that even has to do with us. I get it when the Old Testament talks about Israel or Judah because they're God's people and and the, the church now is God's people. And so I see the parallel. But this isn't even about Israel or Judah. This is about Edom. What could that possibly have to do with us? You'll notice in, the, in this reading that uh, there are times where the prophet uses the word Edom, sometimes uses the word Esau. And that's because the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Esau is the twin brother of Jacob, the grandsons of Abraham, sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And from the, even before they're born, Scripture says, in the womb, they, they're fighting with each other. 
I mean, they are the epitome of sibling rivalry. And, and all throughout their lives, they are fighting with each other. And they are taking advantage of, of each other and conniving with each other. I mean, they grew up in this usually dysfunctional home. The scripture even tells us that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And that's just waiting for problems to happen when you read that, right? Who's mom and dad's favorite? And, and throughout, throughout their lives, they are fighting with each other and... Jacob is the, the schemer, the conniver, and he, he steals Esau's inheritance and ends up in fear running off for many years. And he comes back scared to death about what his brother is going to do to him in retaliation. But his brother's mindset has changed and they reconcile with each other and they spend the rest of their days reconciled. The problem is their descendants forget that. And their descendants pick up with the rivalry again so that when Israel comes out of Egypt looking for a clear pathway into the into the promised land it would make sense to go right through the land of edom and the edomites say no we don't want you to do that stay out of our land or we're going to attack you throughout their history together they fight with each other they they enslave each other and it's this long battle between each other and when it comes time for god's judgment to come upon judah And the Babylonians arrive in Jerusalem and they sack the city and they burn it and they take away the Israelites into captivity. The Edomites stand outside the city and clap. They cheer. They celebrate. They have a party. But not only that, they are not only passively uh, violent toward the Israelites, they are aggressively violent. They, some of the people escape the Babylonians and the Edomites wait outside the city and they cut them down. Or they grab them and hand them back to the Babylonians and say, here's one that got away. And God's word to Edom is, you can't treat each other like that. And God says to Edom, I'm going to bring... Judgment on you. Severe judgment because of the violent way that you treated your brothers and sisters. God cares about how we treat each other. It's important to him. It matters to God that we treat each other with dignity and respect and kindness and compassion. It's important to God. Injustice is something that God doesn't ignore. And I know when we read passages like this, it's a little bit hard for our 21st century minds to to really grasp the fact that God is, is, is so judgmental toward the Edomites and toward these people. But don't we want a God who cares about justice? I mean, we care about justice, We want justice for for people who deserve that. Why would we not want God to care about justice? And if God doesn't do anything about justice, if God does not take a a definitive stand about injustice and about evil, then he does, there's two reasons why he would not do that. One is because he doesn't care, and the other is because he's too weak to do anything about it. And we believe that our God does care. We believe that our God is strong. And he cares about injustice. He cares about how we treat each other. He cares about the violent ways in which human beings uh, act toward each other. And, And he is going to hold us accountable for those choices and those actions. But it's even deeper than that. It's significant that God condemns and judges Edom for the way they treated Israel. 
The way they treated God's people. Now, at first glance, you read that and you think, wow, Israel always has it made with God. God only gets upset when Israel is, the, is, the, uh, is at the brunt of, of what people are doing. And that's not true. The beginning sections of, of Amos, there's a number of prophecies about all the nations around Israel. And they're, and they're judged not because of anything they do to Israel, but because of what they're doing to each other. But God does care about what happens to Israel, not because they're his favorites and they only matter to him, but because they are the means through which God is going to accomplish his purposes in the world. God calls them out of Egypt and says, you're going to be my people. And what that means is that I'm going to live with you and I'm going to transform you so that all the nations around you will understand who I am. And they will want my transforming grace in their lives too. And what you really see here is not so much sibling rivalry, but it's actually something deeper, something far more heinous. It is really the evil one trying to to prevent God's purposes from being accomplished in the world. The evil one is trying to use Edom to eliminate God's people so that God's purposes will not be accomplished. God's purpose of flourishing and transformation in life for everyone. That has been God's intent from the very beginning of creation. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Israel is the means. God's people are the means for that. And that's why the evil one continually attacks God's people. Because he is attempting to to prevent God's purposes from being accomplished in the world. And if God doesn't do something about evil, if God doesn't do something about the, the plans of the evil one, then God's purposes will not be accomplished. And you and I will die. You and I have no hope. You and I have nothing to live for. If, if God doesn't step in and do something drastic about evil and the ways of the evil one, we are fools and hopeless. And that's why when you get to the end of this prophecy, I, I think that perhaps the very last phrase is, is the key part of this whole passage where he says... And in verse 21, those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be king. The Lord himself will be king. God is the king. Now, at first glance, that may is a future tense. It may feel like saying that someday God's going to be king. On that day when God ushers in the kingdom, then he will be king. Right now, we're not really sure. But that's not what he's saying. What he means is, God is the king. God's always been the king. God always will be the king. But the day is coming when everyone will know it. Everyone will see it. God will assert his kingship in a way that he hasn't up to this point. And on that day, God the king will make, bring everything right and he will set everything right and he will, he will accomplish his purposes for the world. And all will see it. That's what Paul is saying when he writes to the Philippians about Jesus. And he says, therefore, 
he will be exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This day that is coming in which Jesus will, will reveal his, his kingship in all of its fullness and glory. Is a day that is out there. But Jesus, who talks about the kingdom more than a hundred times in the Gospels, says it's out there, but it's also here now. He says the kingdom is among you. Look at me. I am the very essence of the king. And I've brought the kingdom to you. And he has initiated the kingdom purposes of God in a new way. And what we see in Jesus is the very nature of the king. That God is king and Jesus is Lord. And so the book of Revelation has all of these declarations about Jesus being Lord. And he says in, in chapter 11 that we read, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God have come. The authority of his Messiah. The angels sang the song of God's servant Moses. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. And all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And in chapter 19, on his robe and his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You want to just break into a chorus of the, of the Messiah, don't you? And he shall reign forever and ever. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is, this is what Obadiah is giving us a glimpse of. God is the King. And the day is coming when all will be revealed. But we get, and we get a picture, a clear presence of that in Jesus, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And he comes to show us what the King is like. For the very essence of Jesus is the essence of the King. He is the Son of God. And that's why when we come to this table, we celebrate God as King and Jesus as Lord. And it is a precursor to the day when we will sit around the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will eat together in the presence of the King as we worship Him in all of His glory. But the thing about Obadiah is we have to remember is that this is not a, a prophecy that's in, in the, 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 the scriptures of Edom. This is a prophecy in the scriptures of Israel. And, and when I think about that, I, I think one of the things that Obadiah is saying to the Israelites is that God is the king even when it doesn't seem like it. God is the king even as you live as exiles in a land that is antagonistic toward the king. God is the king and Jesus is Lord even when you live among people who deny that God is the king and deny that Jesus is Lord. 
The truth of the matter is, we are not all that unlike the Israelites who, who would have received this prophecy from Obadiah as they are spread out, scattered all over the earth. And Obadiah is, is giving them a word of hope. The day is coming, he says, when Jerusalem will be once again the place of holiness because Yahweh will dwell there. The name, God's name is used in this prophecy in only one way, Yahweh. He continually refers to himself as Yahweh, the personal name of God and the relationship that he wants with his people. And the day is coming when we will all come home to Jerusalem, he says. And I have in my mind, my mind this image of, of the prodigal father welcoming his children home. To this place of hope and righteousness. This place that, that exhibits and is all about and is nothing but the priorities of the kingdom. We live in a world like Israel that, quite frankly, is often antagonistic toward the king. Antagonistic toward Jesus is Lord. And sometimes we wrestle with that ourselves. And in, the, in, in this world and in this way, we need to be reminded that Jesus is Lord and, and God is the king. And there is hope. And here's the thing I've noticed. When you know that's true, when you embrace that truth, it changes how you live while you wait. If Jesus is Lord and God is the king and we are God's children, then the call on our lives is to believe so much that God is the King and Jesus is Lord that we live like we believe it's true. And I think that's a big part of our struggle. When we, in a minority culture, the culture in which we are the minority, we're exiles, if you don't really believe that that God is the king and Jesus is Lord, then you treat your enemies the same way Edom treats Israel. You gloat over their failures. You rejoice in their pain and their suffering and their calamity. You celebrate when they fail. You've You'd feel no sense or need to have compassion for them or to lament their lives. You're just glad that they're getting what they deserve. And we say, well, it's because of God's judgment. I mean, after all, God judges Edom for the way they treat Israel. And they have a right. And he says, Edom's going to be, they're going to be stubble and Israel's going to be fire. And that's true. But there is a big difference between God pronouncing judgment and us pronouncing judgment. There is a big difference between God's righteousness and our self-righteousness. And what we tend to do is to react arrogantly toward people. And the call of the gospel is to treat people, treat our enemies the way Jesus does. 
And that means we speak the truth. We stand up for the truth. We're not afraid to, to be known as followers of Yahweh and as children of the king and as brothers and sisters of Christ. But we do that in a way that looks like Jesus. That exhibits the nature and the priorities of the kingdom and the king. I think that's the context in which Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who mourn about the pain and the sin of the world. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the humble. It's in the context of knowing that God is the King and Jesus is Lord that we can step back and we can give up our rights to always have to be right. We can step back and say that we don't have to exhibit power. We don't have to try to crush people. We recognize that the way of the cross is the way of life. And the greatest witness we can have is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. To remember that right before Paul talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. To death. Even death on the cross. I've been thinking a lot lately about the prayer request we had a couple of weeks ago as part of the persecuted church for the Christians in Bangladesh. And the the prayer request uh, was about how the Christians in Bangladesh have been severely treated by the people of that nation, by their enemies. They've been persecuted. They've gone through horrific things. And right now, there are refugees flooding across the border from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And these refugees are, of course, now competing with the Christians who live in the area right where they are coming. They're competing for all the resources, for food, for water, shelter. They're competing for security, They're competing for everything that you can imagine you would want in your life. Basic necessities. And now you've got this mass of people coming into this area. And they are competing for the same resources that the Christians are competing for and finding it hard to get. And what makes matters more interesting is that these people flooding across the border from Myanmar are Muslims. And the church in Bangladesh is asking us to pray that God will give them the ability to love these refugees and to share with these refugees 
and to help these refugees and to sacrifice for these refugees. In essence, to live like they believe that God is king and Jesus is Lord to these refugees. I have been so convicted by that. Our God wants us to be people who act like we believe He is the King. That His resources are sufficient. That His grace is enough. That Jesus is Lord. And to follow Him even to something like a cross is to find life. And as we come to this table, we come celebrating that God is king, but we also come confessing and we come praying that God will so work in us that we will begin to live and act like we really do believe that God is the king and Jesus is Lord. I want to take just a few minutes to, to pray, to, to ponder, to prepare ourselves to come to this table and to receive what God desires to give. Father, we praise you, King of heaven. You are sovereign and you are good. You are almighty and you are all loving. And you are gracious beyond measure. As we come to your table today, we come celebrating who, we, who you are. And we come asking... You to give us grace to become more and more like Christ. Because we believe you are indeed the King. And that Jesus is Lord. May your blessing rest upon the bread and the cup that as we eat and drink, we may be nourished by your food. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.